Well, beloved, I would invite you to open up in your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And as you were doing that, please stand as we honor God in the reading of his word. If you were with us last week, you will remember that we have begun working through 1 Timothy as a congregation here on Sunday morning, and this morning we are going to find ourselves in verses 3 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. <clears throat> as we prepare to hear God's word, let me take this opportunity once again to remind you that what we hear together this morning is not the word of of man, but we hear the word of God address us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please be seated. Samuel Bolton, he was a 17th century Anglican. He once warned the church of his day of dangerous and destructive teachings like this. He said that it is poison in men's hearts. Poison in men's hearts. And church, we all know, of course, what poison does, right? It infects, it it wounds, and ultimately it kills. And it is this lethal poison that gives rise to Paul's letter that is in front of us this morning. Let me explain. Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus to shepherd the congregation that is there. But as you may have gathered from our reading this morning, not all is well. In fact, young Timothy is facing some pretty serious challenges. The most serious is that ugly word, heresy. False teaching has infiltrated the church and, like cancer, it is spreading. And like cancer, if it is not eradicated, it will turn this church into a corpse. What's worse? Well, false teaching comes from false teachers. And these false teachers, please hear this, they most likely have arisen from within the congregation itself. Listen to Paul's word of warning to the elders of this church from Acts chapter 20. Now, just so that you know, Acts chapter 20 is about five years before 1 Timothy. Listen to what Paul says to the elders of the church at Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God 
which he obtained with his own blood. And then he adds these haunting words. This is Acts 20, verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You hear that? The wolves, they will not just enter the fold under the cover of darkness. No, what Paul is saying is the wolves are already in the fold and they are dressed like sheep. I think as Christians, we tend to view like the most dangerous parts of life as those outside, right? We think of the world. And we think of the world and it's like really icky and so we kind of avoid it. But don't misunderstand me. There are certainly parts of the world that are very icky and they should altogether be avoided. I'm not saying otherwise. But Christian, what you have to understand is that there is also trouble in here, like in the church. And the trouble is false teaching. To return to the language of Samuel Bolton, it is poison in men's hearts. And so Paul writes to Timothy. He writes to warn young Timothy, to encourage him. Really, what he's doing is he is calling Timothy to fight. And in so doing, he serves us quite well. I say that because when you look at verses 3 through 7, what you see in a lot of ways are marks. Marks of a ferocious wolf and marks of a faithful shepherd. That's actually going to be our focus together in the Word this morning. How is it that you can spot a ferocious wolf? And how can you spot a faithful shepherd? Answering those two questions will be our aim. Now, when it comes to the wolf, the first mark that we see from our passage is this. They deviate. They deviate. In other words, they go sideways. They zig when they are supposed to zag. And you can see this quite clearly in verse 3, can't you? Because Paul tells Timothy, the reason that he is in Ephesus is verse 3, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any, here it is, different doctrine. Different doctrine. And to be clear, this idea of different here, it doesn't primarily refer to that which is false or strange or erroneous or even new. But the accent is on how it is again different. Well, different from what, you ask? It's a good question. Different from Christ and his apostles. This is what wolves do, right? They deviate from the truth of God's word. Like the driver who ends up crossing lanes and driving into oncoming traffic. Well, so the wolf deviates from Scripture. And we know this is the case because of 1 Timothy 6.3. 1 Timothy 6.3. Here's what you need to know. Those two words in the ESV in verse 3 of 1 Timothy 1 different doctrine, that is one word in Greek. And that one word is only used in two places in all of the New Testament. Once in 1 Timothy 1.3, and then once more in 1 Timothy 6.3. 
So here's what we read in 1 Timothy 6.3. If anyone teaches a, here it is, a different doctrine, and listen to this, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So do, do you hear, do, do you see how different doctrine is described? Different doctrine is that which does not agree, it does not comport with, it does not align with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, to simplify, different doctrine is that which runs contrary to God's word. So please hear this because it is the first mark of a wolf. They deviate from God's word. Second, they devote. They devote. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 again, if you're not already there. We read, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, here it is, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Don't miss this. When you deviate from the truth of God's word, when you go sideways with respect to the gospel, when, when your doctrine is wrong, it's not like a cul-de-sac where you sort of go in and turn around and come out. It's actually like a highway. You, you pick up speed. Church, please hear this. When the truth of God's word is set aside, know this you will take up something else. When the gospel is lost, something else will be found. When you grow discontent with the purity of God's word, you will quickly find yourself gravitating toward that which is polluted. And in this case, the context of 1 Timothy 1, it was an infatuation with myths and genealogies. No longer is the, the plain meaning of Scripture enough. Now we are looking for Easter eggs. right? Christ and Him crucified for sinners, that no longer has really like the compelling and captivating power that it once did. So now we need to go deeper. We need myths and genealogies. When it comes to a myth, this is nothing but a tall tale, a legend, a fictional story. It's the sort of stuff that gullible people tend to believe and follow. And unfortunately, none of this stuff proves to be of value. It's the lady who spotted the Loch Ness Monster in the Columbia River. It's your friend's neighbor's cousin's aunt who was abducted by aliens. It's the guy who sailed his boat off the edge of the flat earth we live on and somehow lived to tell us all about it. Or it's a little boy who went to heaven and came back with a book deal. Or it's the little old lady who meets Jesus in her oatmeal. Or it's the young man who spent 23 minutes in hell and he has a DVD now that you just have to see. You see, church, the same nonsense that's going on today, it was the same nonsense that's been going on forever. 
It was happening in Ephesus, just as it's happening here. Christians tend to be a gullible people. And they tend to be those who love the idea of chasing unicorns. And I think that the reason that Christians tend to chase unicorns is because they've grown bored with God and his word. Which really means the reason that myths even exist, the reason that they have any persuasion at all, is because God's people are not joyfully satisfied in God and his word and his gospel. When it comes to genealogies, it seems apparent that these wolves were those who played fast and loose with the word of God. They, they would treat God's word like a wax nose, right? So they would, they would look at this particular Bible character and, and where he came from and what his name was and, and how many letters it was and how long he lived. And they'd put it all together and they would develop like a whole systematic theology from it. They would speculate about this. They would search for connections over there. And they would draw no shortage of conclusions. And again, we have this today. I have a book on my shelf, Cracking the Bible Code. Why don't you open it? That's how you crack the code. Open it and read it. Left to right, top to bottom, I'll teach you. But this stuff is everywhere. It's everywhere. Instead of being devoted to upholding the truth, rather than simply devoting themselves, 1 Timothy 4.13, to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching, instead of that, these wolves would become pastoral magicians, pulling theological rabbits out of Bible hats. Let's press on now to the third mark of a ferocious wolf. They distract. And to be more specific, they distract God's people from God's gospel. You see this in at least two ways in our passage. For starters, in verse 3, these wolves teach different doctrine. And because they're teaching different doctrine, they devote themselves, verse 4, to myths and endless genealogies. Well, what does that result in? Middle of verse 4. The promotion of speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. That is to say, rather than a single-minded devotion to God and to Christ, the people of God are distracted with vain speculations about this, that, and the other thing. For example, when the congregation sins, they aren't encouraged to look to Christ. Instead, they're busy chasing down some mythical story. When marriages are wrecked and children die unexpectedly and people get cancer and persecution comes, Christ is not their anchor. And how could he be? The pastors are too busy teaching the congregation how to count every seventh letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That way they can crack the code. Or the pastors are busy teaching the church how to pray in some unknown angelic tongue. That way God will really hear them. The idea of a bloody cross with Christ fixed to it. That's all a bit too old-fashioned. Instead, the people have given all their attention to trying to discover who exactly were Melchizedek's parents. 
Another way to see our passage speak to this distraction is in verse 6. We read there that certain persons, and again, these certain persons are the false teachers, the wolves. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into what? Vain discussion. Verse 7 now, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You hear that? They've swerved. They've wandered, like being dropped off in the middle of a, of a deserted island, blindfolded and without a compass. So these teachers, these pastors, these wolves, they're clueless. And as verse 7 tells us, they do not know what they are talking about. And therefore, they are distracting God's people from God's word, from God's gospel. Now, it would seem that based upon the context of chapter 1, that these specific false teachers, they were inspired by like the Jewish rabbis of the day. Now, I say that because in verse 4, it says that they have devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies. That, that is no doubt a reference to the Old Testament. And then here in verse 7, we are told they desired to be teachers of the law. Again, that is Old Testament law. So it would seem to me that some of the elders in Ephesus, they aspired to be something like Christian versions of the ancient rabbis. They, they wanted to be like authoritative teachers of the deep and mysterious and esoteric things of the Old Testament. And so in imitation of their rabbinic counterparts, these false teachers spoke with assured confidence and dogmatism. Even though, as Paul says, they had no idea what they were even talking about. If you zoom out, what you see is that these guys were an all-too-common combination of two vices, arrogance and ignorance. Now, one of those on its own is bad enough, but when you couple them together, it's quite awful. Because this means that they would rattle on with endless esoteric and pious-sounding words. But in the final analysis, their ramblings produce nothing of any substance or worth. Maybe you've heard the old preaching joke. It goes like this. There were words written on the note of the pastor that morning. And it said, weak point here. Look confident and pound pulpit. That's these guys. They don't know what they're talking about, but they want you to think they know what they're talking about. These are the marks of a ferocious wolf, church. They deviate, they devote, and they distract. But before we move on to the faithful shepherd and his marks... I want to just spend a very quick moment and point out two concrete ways in which these ferocious wolves tend to show their teeth today. So let me, let me try to sort of uh, bring 1 Timothy 1 into our contemporary context. First, there is abuse. There is abuse. And what I mean by that is they abuse Christ and the way that they abuse Christ is they neglect Christ. The great evangelist George Whitfield lamented, Mere heathen morality and not Jesus Christ is preached in most of our churches. 
I wonder what he would say today. These wolves, they conveniently neglect Christ. They neglect his glory and his beauty and his power. It seems that they know nothing of it. From the pulpits today, you will hear little of Christ's miraculous birth, his sinless life, his sacrificial death. His resurrection is not center stage. His ascension is disregarded. And his promised future return is nothing but a cliche. In short, we have a slew of Christless sermons. So then what does pervade the sermons of these wolves today? Well, that leads to the second concrete way in which they show their teeth. First, abuse. Second, misuse. Misuse. They misuse sacred scripture. Their sermons, or as they would be called today, their messages, they don't center on Christ and his cross. Who do those messages center upon? You. It's about you. And that, my friends, you have to understand, is a great misuse of sacred scripture. And that is because, brace yourself, God's word is not ultimately about you. Neither is it about how good you are or how good you could be or about you acquiring your best life now. From so many pulpits across our land, you will hear sermons, but you would be forgiven if you mistook them for self-improvement courses or motivational speeches or spiritual pick-me-ups offered by some new age guru. And don't get me wrong, these guys and gals They use the Bible. I assure you, there will be Bible verses placed up on the screen, and they will perhaps even be read or made mention of. But a modicum of discernment will reveal that these same Bible verses, they are not actually exegeted. They're not expounded. There is no concern for the historical or grammatical or literary context. Context be damned. Instead, Bible verses are used as something of a springboard so that the pastor can talk about what he wants to talk about. In other words, he has an idea in his mind, something he thinks important, and then he goes and finds a Bible verse to substantiate that. And that's why these so-called sermons lack truth and substance and power. That's why there is no conviction, there is no zeal. There is no earnest desire to see lives truly transformed and for the people of God to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. There is an absolute absence when it comes to a hunger for God's glory and for righteousness and for repentance. Instead, the whole thing, it has the flavor of story time at the library. I guess what I'm trying to say to you, church, is that false teachers, the ones in Timothy's day and the ones in our day, they use Bibles. Or to be more specific, they misuse the Bible. Christian, don't make the mistake of thinking that false teachers walk around with like a pitchfork and capes and horns. You know the way you can usually spot a false teacher? They have a Bible under their arm. And that's what makes them so dangerous. That's what makes them so ferocious. 
Now let's shift gears and see the marks then of a faithful shepherd. In light of these false teachers in Ephesus, what does Paul instruct Timothy to do? First, confront. Second, correct. And third, convert. Let's look at each. First, a faithful shepherd is one who confronts. That's really the tone of our passage, isn't it? Verse 3 again. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Why? So that. Here's the purpose that Timothy is. This is why you're there, Timothy. So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Timothy, you've got to get your hands dirty. You've got to speak up. You've got to call these guys out by name. You've got to confront this evil for what it is. Timothy, this is not merely a difference of opinion. We're not talking here about secondary or tertiary doctrines. This is rank heresy, and it will destroy the very souls of God's people. So you have got to get in the game. That word there in verse 3, charge, it's actually a very strong word. Some of your translations might even have it rendered command. It actually refers to a military command. It demands that a subordinate obey an order of a superior. So it's the flavor of, Timothy, you have to do this. Timothy, you you have to confront these guys. It's been said, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. And you better believe that's certainly true in the context of the local church. A pastor is one who will confront. That means he won't be afraid. He won't cower in the corner. When evil is afoot, when false teaching is happening, when wolves are devouring the sheep, that is not the time to be winsome. No, what the faithful shepherd will do is he will put himself in between the wolves and the sheep. That's what he must do. That's what his calling is. Shepherds without conviction. Shepherds without courage. Shepherds who are not willing to stand up to the wolves and stand up for the church are not shepherds at all. They are what Jesus called them. They are hirelings. Second, a faithful shepherd will also correct. It's not enough to blow the whistle. It's not enough to say this is wrong. The faithful shepherd must show what is right. The wolves that were preying upon the sheep in Ephesus, they were distracting the sheep. And this distraction, it promoted, again, verse 4, speculations. It was, it was leading to controversy in the church. The faithful pastor will not sit on his hands. He will not casually fire off maybe an email or a couple of texts. No, he he will get involved and he will say, Church, enough speculation. Here is the Savior. No more of this controversy. It must end now. Repent and embrace Christ. This is no doubt what is intended there by that sort of awkward end of verse 4. We are told false teaching promoted speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And again, I think that's kind of clunky. And you can get an idea of how clunky it is by observing the the way that various translations render verse 4. 
For example, and I know some of you are reading the New American Standard Bible. It reads, mere speculations rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Or you might consider the Holman Christian Standard Version. It reads, these promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. One more, this is from the New English Translation. Such things promote useless speculations rather than God's redemptive plan that operates by faith. Here's what I think is trying to be said, church. Paul means that faithful pastors have been given the massive responsibility to make sure that the truth of God's word goes forth and that the congregation knows that you lay hold of that truth one way and one way only, and that is by faith. That's, I think, the thrust of what's happening here. The plan of God, the promises of God, the purposes of God, the pursuit of God, the person of God's Son, all of this is embraced by faith and by faith alone. And so what Paul is saying is, church, you've got to have your eyes fixed upon Christ and Christ alone. Everything else is speculation. Everything else is vain discussion. If it clouds your vision of Christ, if you don't see the glory and the beauty and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, you can know that you have zigged when you were supposed to zag. Fix your eyes on Christ and do so by faith and by faith alone. That's the thrust. But the problem, of course, with false teaching, and that's especially here with myths and endless genealogies, is that Christ is not at the center, is he? His sufficiency is not where the accent is placed. Trusting and treasuring Christ by faith and by faith alone, that's just not the bell that is being rung. Instead, people are told to sow their seed, to name it and claim it, to believe and receive. It's tragic, but in so much of today's so-called Christianity, Christ is prostituted out for prosperity. Christ very quickly becomes nothing but a lever to be pulled, a button to be pushed, a, a genie to be rubbed so that you can get your health, your wealth, your dreams, so that you can worship you. It's an abomination. It's an absolute abomination. And the faithful shepherd, he will confront it and he will seek to correct it. And of course, that's just one example. And third and finally, a faithful shepherd will labor to convert. To convert. Now, let me be very quick to qualify. We don't convert anyone ourselves, right? This is the job of Christ and His Spirit. We don't do that. We're reformed here. But don't misunderstand me. Just as our salvation does not rest upon our shoulders, neither does the salvation of the person next to us rest upon our shoulders. But, here's the but. Paul did say to the Corinthians, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Right? 
So I, I think we're safe to use that language this morning, just so long as we all understand what we're saying. So when I say that faithful shepherds will labor to convert, I mean that pastors ought to preach with an aim of saving souls. To ratchet it up a bit, evangelists ought to evangelize, and you Christians ought to engage those around you with one of the goals being the conversion of those with whom you share. That's what verse 5 tells us, right? After warning Timothy that these false teachers will distract God's people from God's gospel, he then states in verse 5 very clearly the goal, doesn't he? He writes, the aim of our charge, the goal, right? The purpose, the focus, you get it. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, right? So that's the aim, that's the charge. That's what pastors and churches and individual Christians like yourself are to be striving for. We're to be striving for a love that erupts from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, to be clear, in the context, and this is sort of shocking, Paul is talking about the wolf here. He's talking about the false teacher. Does Paul care about the church and her growth and grace? Of course, to ask a question is to answer it. But notice the context. Paul is calling upon Timothy and all faithful pastors to confront error and correct false teachers. Why? So that those who are propagating such falsehood would be converted. So that the hatred that spews forth from their hard heart would actually become, verse 5, love. So that the vile heart of the wolf would be pure. So that their seared conscience would be good. That their false faith would be sincere. Church, isn't this one of our goals? I mean, we believe this, right? We believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We believe that, right? That's why we don't do skits, so we don't do drama, why we don't do dance, why we don't do sculpture, why we don't do all these silly things that every other Christian church seems to be doing these days. Because we actually believe that the Holy Spirit works through the reading and preaching of his word. And he does not need us to help him out or to add stuff to it. This is why you are here in this hot room cooking right now with your Bibles open. Because you actually believe that the Holy Spirit is doing something in your heart and the heart of the person next to you. We believe this, right? We believe that preaching the truth and warning of error and calling people to repent of their sin and to entrust themselves to Christ, we believe that in God's good grace that he will actually convert some to Christ. I believe that. And then when someone is converted... Scripture tells us that their heart of stone is taken out, and in its place a heart of flesh is given. And, 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 and sort of the, the, the theological, the church word for that is regeneration. And now that person, catch this, who was once a God-hater, now they are, by the grace of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, now they're not a God-hater, but they're what? A God-lover. 
And that love, it rises from a purified heart now. A heart that has been made new by the gospel of God. That love for God, it rises and it comes from a cleaned conscience. One that has been scrubbed, squeaky clean by the blood of the Lamb. And this love for God, it comes from a genuine faith. Now this person truly trusts and treasures Christ. And that faith, it is bought and paid for in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is given as a gift by the Holy Spirit in the miracle of regeneration. And so what all of this means, dear church, is that verse 5, all of it from beginning to end, it is all of grace. The love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, it is the result of God's mercy and grace. And so this is why we labor. This is why we confront false teachers. This is why we correct. This is why we preach. This is why we pray. This is why you witness. This is why you evangelize. This is why you befriend neighbors and coworkers and schoolmates. Why? Because God is in the business of saving souls through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You know how I know that? I know that because that's what, the God, what's God word, that's what God's word says. And I know that for the same reason you know that. Because that's how God saved each and every one of us. Not by an angel visiting you. Not by God writing it in the moon dust. But by someone actually opening their mouth and telling you the good news of Jesus Christ. What I hope you see then is that all of this rests upon a very firm foundation of a very unpopular word today. And that's the word doctrine. Remember, the putrid smell of false teaching is coming from the septic tank of different doctrine. That's verse 3. Which means, and here we've come full circle, Different doctrine is only refuted by, 1 Timothy 1.10, sound doctrine. And now, perhaps more than ever, the church needs deep and thoughtful and robust theology. It needs sound doctrine. You have to understand, church, that sound doctrine is the only dam that will hold back the flood of false teaching. But of course, this is right where the battle is fought, isn't it? Amos, he spoke of a famine. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of actually hearing the words of the Lord. And it seems to me that that is our problem today. The church has had a steady diet of cotton candy for way too long. And therefore, she is malnourished. She's starving and doesn't even know it. So many Christians in many churches, they don't want doctrine. They're used to cotton candy. In their clouded judgment, the ocean of God's truth, it has been reduced to a meager puddle. This is why the mantra of our hour is something like this. Doctrine is divisive. Doctrine is old. Doctrine is dusty. Doctrine is not practical. As if loving God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength isn't practical. But notice, Christian, the problems in Ephesus, they stem from different doctrine. The solution then? 
Not no doctrine, but again, sound doctrine. That is the need of the hour. That is true in Ephesus, and it is true here as well. So Christian, let me conclude with three very brief exhortations. For starters, devour the word. Morning and evening, feed upon the word. Read it and pray it and sing it and memorize it and live in light of it. You want to know the single best way for you as a Christian and us as a church to promote sound doctrine? The single best way is for each and every one of you to personally be immersed in sound doctrine yourselves. So you must go to the well of God's word and draw up buckets of it. Christian, devour the scriptures. Also, be sure you settle for nothing less than faithful and sound doctrine. Don't compromise. Don't settle. Don't get squishy. Practically speaking, if the books you read are fluffy, chuck them. If the Christian music that you listen to is anemic, get rid of it. If the sermons or the podcasts that you listen to when you're doing yard work or working out, if they're not enriching your soul, then just quit wasting your time. You, you've only got so much time, so redeem it. And redeem it by marinating in the riches and glory of God. And then finally, I would exhort you to encourage your pastors. Encourage us to press on in teaching you the rich and deep and sound doctrine of God's Word. Ask for book recommendations. Inquire about Sunday school classes. Beg your pastors not just to give you the milk of the Word, but the meat and potatoes of the Word. And I assure you this, faithful shepherds will be more than happy to serve you in that way. Let's go before the Lord now and ask for his help. Our gracious Father, we pray for the help of your spirit this morning. We pray this on several fronts. One, we pray that you would protect us as individuals and this congregation from false teaching. We pray that you would keep us from wolves coming into our midst. And we pray that if and when you do allow them to come into our midst, that you might give the shepherds of this church strength. Lord, we don't pet wolves, we shoot them. So we pray that you would give us bullets. We also pray, Father, with the departure of our beloved Pastor Eddie and his family this morning, that you would raise up men in his place who would help shepherd this congregation. We pray that as a people here, that we would keep our eyes fixed upon Christ. There is much to distract us. There is much good that can be a distraction. But we pray that the beginning of the day, in the middle of the day, in the end of the day, that you would stir our affections for Christ, that you would renew our minds and open our eyes and loose our tongues, that we would love him and that we would serve him and that we would obey him. We pray that you would strengthen us to that end by the work of your spirit in the name of your son. Amen.